Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for June 30th, 2017. I'm Peter Serretta. Every weekday, we bring you the most interesting news from the world of movies and television and wrap it up with a deeper dive into one of the great features in SlashFilm.com. On today's show, we will dive into a couple trailers released yesterday, Jumanji and Inhumans. Netflix is bringing back Sense8 after demand from fans. Our guest, Ben Pearson, will be talking about the one thing that disappoints him about Spider-Man Homecoming and the future of Spidey and the MCU. I have with me right now, Ben Pearson from SlashFilm.com. Hey, Peter. How's it going? Good to have you. Thanks. So last night, you saw Spider-Man Homecoming for the first time. I did. And not many people out there have seen it, so we don't want to spoil anything. So we'll keep this in very broad terms. If you've seen the first two trailers then we won't be spoiling anything that hasn't been seen in those. So wh- what did you think of Spider-Man Homecoming? So I really like the movie. Uh, I think Tom Holland is fantastic. There's one thing that sort of rankles me about the film, though. And uh, like you mentioned, this is in the second trailer, so it's not too much of a spoiler. But there comes a point when in the movie when... Um, Tony Stark removes, like, takes away uh, Peter Parker's Spidey suit, the enhanced Spidey suit, and uh, the movie and we, sort and of. We've seen this enhanced Spidey suit in Civil War. It, it, it yes. you know, has all sorts of gadgets that we've seen in the. So there's a part where Tony takes away the suit, and uh, there's a, a chunk of the movie where Peter Parker is operating as basically the Spider-Man that we have always known him to be from the original comics, where he's. Uh, relying on his own ingenuity and his own abilities and his own intelligence to uh, come up with interesting workarounds to the many problems that he has. He's, you know, creating his own web fluid web shooters and stuff. He's, he's uh, you know, invented his own web shooters. And that's the part of the movie that I loved. And I wish that there was a lot more of that. The one thing that disappoints me about this film is the tie-in to the MCU in which uh, 
Tony Stark gives him this suit that has all of these different powers and functionalities and stuff that Peter himself either has had not come up with yet on his own because we know that he's an intelligent character. It, um, it, it's more of like one of those story points where it's a kid in a candy store being given every possible thing. Yeah, that's with. exactly right. And there's, there's um, so I didn't really feel the sense of peril that I'm sure the filmmakers would have wanted me to because I was always had this thought on the back of my mind that, oh, maybe there's some sort of functionality of the suit that could get Spider-Man out of this scrape at any, you know, at the last second, kind of a, a day ex machina kind of thing. Um, so the idea of uh, Peter being, you know, the stripped down version of Spider-Man is one that I love. But because he's back in the MCU now, that and because he's, you know, hooked into Iron Man and, you know, linked to that technology, I don't think we're going to be able to see that version of the character again, uh, maybe until... Sony, you know, retains the rights and then reboots the character again, you know, years from now. Well, we, we don't necessarily know that because we do know, you know, the sequel to this is going to be coming after the Infinity War and Avengers, Avengers 4. <laughs> and uh, we don't know what will happen in those. You know, Tony Stark could die, you know. I guess that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, just I, and looks... I'm not saying that based on any knowledge I have. I'm just saying we don't, we don't know where that will leave him. And we've, we've heard that you know, phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe will start with that next Spider-Man movie. So it might put him in a different situation. I mean, I agree with you. It's like the Iron Man 3 uh, situation. You know, we like Tony Stark more when he... Yeah. Any character is more interesting when they have to... When they're stripped. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, th- this film is one of my favorites this year so far. And I know we're going to be publishing those next week. So that's a little bit of a spoiler alert for those articles. But uh, I, I definitely agree with you. I think when this movie excels, it's with the coming-of-age character-based stuff. Mm-hmm. And when when it gets to become these big, bombastic action sequences on top of monuments in Washington, D.C. or Staten Island ferries, it's a little less interesting than Peter asking a girl out. Uh, like, you know, that, that kind of stuff, uh, I think, is more interesting than the typical superhero stuff. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, we both really like the movie and still have these issues with it. So it's not like uh, it's not a deal breaker by any means. It's just, um, you know, uh, a style choice. And, and we really connected, it sounds like, to the, the John Hughes kind of angle that they took with it. So, um, yeah, definitely we're seeing definitely one of my favorite movies this year so far. And I love how the movie is not subtle at all in that respect. Of like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it knows it wants to be a John Hughes movie. And it yeah. also knows, and it wants you to know in every single scene that it is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm-hmm. And there's references abound. Um, anyways, let's get into the news. Uh, Netflix is bringing back Sense8 uh, for a two-hour finale. Neither of us watch this show, so it's Correct. a little hard to talk about. But I know some of you out there do watch the show. And when it was canceled earlier this month, uh, fans were outraged. There's a very passionate fan base for this. Uh, the Wachowskis, uh, Lana, and Lily were the showrunners for the this Netflix series. And uh, I had admittedly gave it a shot and could only make it a few minutes in before I, I, I kind of tapped out. They have to try it again. I've heard it takes a couple episodes before you, know, you can really get into it. Um, As with most Netflix shows, apparently. <laughs> yes. Um, 
so, so what, what, do, what do you think about Netflix actually deciding to bring this series back to to a conclusion for a two episode uh, finale or two well, hour I mean, finale? Yeah, it's not uh, super surprising because Netflix has sort of gained a reputation in the past few years for becoming exactly that, you know, a place where uh, where fans' voices can be heard and they've, uh, you know, um, resurrected and picked up from the, the scrap heaps all sorts of different shows from different networks and different places. Uh, and so, yeah, it sort of makes sense that after a huge fan outcry from the Sense8 fan community that Netflix would be receptive to that and and say, hey, there's actually uh, maybe a, a louder, bigger audience, more passionate audience here than we thought. And let's go ahead um, and, you know, service that audience with uh, with some closure. So, I, I mean, I, I respect the choice. I, I feel like they, um, you know, the, a lot of the times stuff like this can fall on deaf ears with uh, traditional networks. But I think Netflix has the resources certainly to be like, okay, yeah, we'll throw them a bone here. Um, yeah. You know, they're talking about putting out whatever, $6 billion worth of uh, original content, I think, in 2017. So that's uh, they certainly have the money to produce uh, another two hours of the show. Um, and I think it would uh, or it will make the, the fans happy. So uh, good for them. And, and that's the thing, too, is like a normal network, even like a premium network like AMC or whatnot, uh, if they were going to be put in this situation, it's almost like a no win to like just have like you know, one night finale. Right. Uh, but for Netflix, they want people to be subscribed and keep subscribing. So having a two hour finale is something in their benefit. Whereas the network wants to have you down for 10 or 24 nights. Sure. Yeah. Long period of time. Uh, I would say for anybody interested in this, go to slash film.com. Lana Wachowski wrote a heartfelt letter to fans most interesting is one uh, one of one of the last lines she says after this if this experience has taught me anything you never know so i'm not sure if that is hinting towards like if this special garners enough audience will could there be more oh, i mean they're, they're they're definitely marketing it as a finale yeah that's uh that's fascinating i had not really considered that and i don't know yeah, it, to me, it just it reads as them, um, you know, doing what they can to provide some closure. But I guess, yeah, there's always the possibility that uh, that this could be, you know, a major event and, and you know, everyone could come out of the woodwork and people who, uh, you know, have heard about all of this outcry could have binged the whole season, you know, the whole series really in between now and then and, and finally uh you know, become, you know, become full fledged fans. And, and uh, maybe the ne- the numbers will be in Netflix's favor there to uh, give it another, you know, maybe six episode season or something like that. So, yeah, we'll have to see what happens. It is interesting. It's like, you know, Netflix has saved all these shows and it's like, what happens to the show on Netflix that gets canceled? Yeah, I guess Netflix saves it. Um, <laughs> OK, so anyways, we have a bunch of trailers here that we're going to briefly discuss. Uh, let's get to Jumanji first. It seems like when I was at CinemaCon, I was shown something very similar to this. The, this is a sequel reboot of the you know the previous Jumanji film. This one's called Jumanji: Welcome to the Jungle because every sequel reboot now has to have a subtitle like right <laughs> um, like that. So, uh, you know, I 
I'll repeat what I've said previously. Like I, when I first saw photos from this production, it looked really, really bad to me that, you know, the, the actress that looks very scantily like a Laura Croft pinup and, you know, the, I mean, it looked like stereotypes and, I mean, I guess that's the pitch of this, right? Is that right. we have a breakfast club group of people that are in detention and, and somehow come across this video game, this Jumanji video game, and it sucks them in, and they become those those archetypes. Um, right. But I'm wondering how long does that joke last? How long uh, having, you know, the pretty popular girl as... Uh, Jack Black. <laughs> um, yeah. How long is that joke funny? Uh, from the trailer, not funny. Not very long at all. I mean, it, this thing looks like, uh, yeah, it, it just it looks totally unlike the original Jumanji film, which I can't imagine hardcore fans of that movie will be thrilled with this. So then who are you really marketing this to? So it almost seems like they're trying to turn it into another the rock movie which sure he has you know global appeal and all of that but i don't know it just seems like there's not that much thought put into this movie it's really as simple as okay these uh actors are becoming avatars for these kids playing a video game and then we're gonna throw them into generic action scenarios and just you know shake the whole thing up um, what, what did you make of the whole trailer, you know, the trailer as a whole? I mean, I don't know. The action seemed like it could be cool, but, uh, I don't understand what the rock is doing here because he signed on to the jungle cruise. He has yeah. a, a Jumanji welcome to the jungle. And like, what is going to, like, I, I don't know how one is going to be different from the other. It, it, they're both jungle adventure movies. Yeah. Um, I guess in this one, because it has this video game, uh, construct you have the idea that people can die and respawn a certain amount of times before you are dead um which is interesting but i don't think i wanted a jumanji movie to be a video game movie yeah and then how does that even work in you know in the the original movie if i recall correctly the game itself seemed to be this almost ancient force right like the board game uh, the box, you know, it had this this very evocative feel to it. And then all of a sudden these kids in this school discover a video game. Like, who designed this game? You know, like, video games seem too uh, too modern for a an elemental thing like what the original Jumanji was, you know? I don't know. It's a, it's a strange choice. I think the only thing that maybe Dwayne Johnson and those guys... Uh, were thinking about when they signed on is if Sony wants to turn this into a franchise, if it happens to do well enough, there is the potential for them to uh, appear again playing the same characters but with different kids, um, oh, you know, in, inhabiting them. And so maybe that would be a way for them to, uh, you know, put some different shades on things, but that's only if this movie does well enough. And based on what I'm seeing, it's not a very good trailer. So well, I don't know. I could also see the appeal from an actor like The Rock because this gets this allows him to play against type and play the you know the 
non-heroic the 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 wimp you know what i mean like you get to play a oh right yeah like uh yeah i see very against his body type so I, I could see that too but we should move on to the inhumans trailer this is the new marvel abc series uh the debut episode is gonna arrive in imax theaters it was shot uh, the the first two episodes were shot in native imax um, which I, I think doesn't mean anything anymore because I think that's basically a RE Alexa 65 millimeter camera, which is mm. digital. But regardless, you're, you're going to get the full screen experience. Uh, I was kind of excited for this because um, it seemed like they were going to try to go more cinematic than Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I was very disappointed in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and gave up on that show, you know, long ago. Yep, um, same. And... You know, th- this was originally going to be a movie a, a, a that was going to be released in theaters. So I was like, oh, maybe this will be good. Judging by this trailer, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Kevin Feige dodged a huge bullet on this one. <laughs> yes. Um, again, this is another property that I'm, I'm not well versed on. I, you know, I've read many Marvel comics, but Inhumans is not one of them. Uh, so I'm not really sure I understand the concept of this splintered royal family. Um, but the the trailer looks like it has a lot of kind of cheesy sets and cheesy costumes. And I don't know. I don't. It doesn't look like it's for me. I was shocked, Peter. I was shocked at how bad this is. I, I was like, my mouth was agape. I was like, my God, this looks like a a cosplay fan film. You know, I've seen fan films that are better than this, you know, that look better than this. And that's like, this this is something that ABC is like pushing in a major way. You know, they're putting those episodes in theaters and it's like, I wouldn't want to watch this on a smartphone. It looks so terrible. Yeah, I uh, I might go see the first two episodes in IMAX just to see what an IMAX TV show can be. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't. It would have to do a lot. To, yeah, and to I capture my DVR interest. Yeah, oh, for sure. And uh, you know, the the talk is that this show is supposed to be sort of influenced by Game of Thrones, right? The the royal family and the splintering and the sort of infighting and stuff like that. And uh, Ramsey, the guy who plays Ramsey Bolton in Game of Thrones, is playing the villain in this show, and he's sort of trying to, uh, you know, usurp the throne or whatever he's doing. Uh, Game <laughs> of Thrones itself, it has aired uh, episodes in the IMAX format in theater. So I would highly suggest going to check out one of those if they do another one of those anytime soon, instead of seeing the Inhumans on an IMAX screen to see what the, uh, the medium is capable of do, of achieving on a massive screen. Cause game of Thrones is certainly a more cinematic show than what looks like something that, you know, a bunch of kids could have filmed in, you know, in a, in a college class or something. This is just like really, really legendarily bad stuff. I think wow, you are really harsh on this one. Um, <laughs> okay. That, 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 that rounds out the news. Where can we find more of your work on the internet, Ben? Uh, you can find me writing every day at slash film.com. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Ben pairs. In today's feature presentation, we will look at five Michael Bay audio commentary recommendations with 
Jack Drew. Jack, uh, we are both big fans of Michael Bay. Is, is is that fair to say? Yeah, even though I would say I'm not a big fan of most of his movies, he himself I'm a big fan of. Yeah, he's almost like a cartoon character himself. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of amazing. Like I feel like a lot of the things he would get away with or do, even the way he runs his movies, you, I imagine some other directors would not be able to do that, probably because he has this clout. I don't imagine anybody being able to run things the way he does. I, I was on the set of the last Transformers movie, Transformers 4, whatever the hell that was called, and I've never seen crew members. I've never seen a, a, a crew more scared for their life. Like, I think the day I was on set, he did something like 60 setups, and I'm not sure if you know, but like a normal movie does like... 15 or 20, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. You don't sit around. Call, calls cut, and it's time to you know set up a new shot. Everybody is running like it's the <laughs> end of the world. And Michael Bay is on his megaphone, and he's he has this golf cart with these uh, I want to say monster truck sized wheels. Like it's like a custom monster truck sized golf cart with camo. It's like camo painted, and he's you know driving like a maniac, yelling on the megaphone, and it's the most entertaining. Anyways, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about audio commentaries from Michael Bay. What do you recommend for us? Uh, I recommend all of them, but I just wanted to comment on one thing you said about how he has camo on his golf court. Yeah, that's perfect for him because he is one of those directors in his commentaries that compares making a movie to like going to war, which always. Like a lot of people, I think this makes me laugh a little bit. But all of his commentaries, I'd really recommend. Uh, just, I mean, it's his style and his personality. And I don't know. I, I think if you listen to them, even if you're not a fan of him, I think you'll come out with a respect for him, at least. Just how he does things or how he sees things. It's just definitely different. Let's talk about Bad Boys. That was one of his earliest films, right? Yeah, it was his first one. I think he's 28 or 29. And nobody believed in it. Like, it was a pretty small budget for him at the time. And the studio didn't want to make it. He almost walked away a few times, it seemed. Basically, Bruckheimer, Don Simpson, and the stars, and Bay, who believed in it. Like, as I wrote, like, he had to even pay for, like, one shot in the movie for $25,000. What shot in the movie did he have to pay $25,000 for? It's where Martin Lawrence, at the end, is like, you forgot your boarding pass, and blows up that dude. And that was the shot he paid for, because he thought... That'll be the scene that'll make the audience cheer at the end. We need this shot. And he said whenever he saw the movie, they cheered. So, <laughs> What other commentaries should we, we be looking out for? Or Do all these commentaries feature Michael Bay? or is it They all feature him. Sometimes other participants. But the two that aren't on the list that I recommend are Pearl Harbor and Armageddon because Ben Affleck's on them. And you might have seen, like, I don't know if you've listened to it, but the YouTube clips of Ben Affleck commenting on Armageddon and both movies... He just has that consistent tone. Like, the Pearl Harbor commentary is just him cracking up Josh Hartnett the whole time. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they're great. Ben Affleck's always great. If you can listen to any of the Kevin Smith commentaries that he's on, he's great. And he made some good points with the Pearl Harbor commentary. I think if that movie had come out, you know, six months later, uh, it wouldn't have got as <laughs> it wouldn't have gotten as much flack. I'm not saying it wouldn't have gotten flack, but but I think like it came yeah. out right before 9/11, right? I mean, I remember seeing that movie in the theater and then being wowed by it. Like, I'll never forget my brother crying during Pearl Harbor. But I, I had that experience with a lot of his movies. Like, I remember when I saw Transformers 4, and I just 
wasn't a fan, but at the end, I was wondering if like the audience actually liked it because they were so mute. And then at the end, just a huge round of applause. And that's something that impresses me about Michael Bay. You could tell during his commentaries is he knows his audience and like how to reach them. Like even whether it's with his crude humor or how he moves his camera, like he knows who he's going for. Well, what did we learn from the island commentary? The island, I think, is an underrated movie. By the way, I know it is basically you know a, a remake of other better sci-fi movies, but I, I think it's underrated. I think it's a pretty good one. I think I like the first hour of it more before it gets to more action-heavy. Yeah. And but the one thing I noticed throughout his commentaries is um, he's always trying to rework scenes or ideas. When the big highway chase at, at, at the end of the island happens, he says, I got accused of ripping off like the Bad Boys 2 chase, but he said, no, I was actually improving it. And I don't think it's nearly as good, but you see certain action beats or just little things that you can tell throughout his movies. He keeps ideas. He keeps trying to perfect. What do you think is the funniest thing he set, has said in any of these audio commentaries? Oh, man. <laughs> That's such. That's a hard question to answer. I don't know. Like they're very funny, and he has a great sense of humor about himself too. I think that would surprise people how self-aware he is based on his movies. A lot of the things he gets criticized for, he's very aware of. I just, I just think he doesn't care. Oh, do you remember that really shameless shot of Megan Fox in Transformers Two when she's on the motorcycle? Yes. Okay, I'll tell you how that came about. He said on Christmas Eve, he was watching Benjamin Button at a party at his house, and he needed ice cream. So he went to the store, and he saw these teenagers, and they said, like, hey, aren't you the guy that does Transformers? And he's like, yeah. And he started talking about how they're awkward kids, and he asked them, so what are you looking forward to in Transformers 2? And one of them just said, uh, the hot one. The kid did say that, and it was Michael Bay's idea to, <laughs> I guess, give to make that scene just for those teenage boys. <laughs> and yeah, he said Michael Bay, was... a person of the creepy teenage boys at the Seven Eleven. Yeah, any a lot of other directors would laugh off those kids, not take them seriously, or like <laughs> you know, a man be bothered by it. But yeah, a man of the people. That's his audience. <laughs> it's definitely disgusting, but oh. it's telling that he knows it's disgusting. Oh, it's it's definitely disgusting. Which but, makes it worse that he knows it shows, <laughs> I guess, a tone deafness. You see, that's the thing, Jack, about Michael Bay is that I don't like that. No. But I love the idea. I love the idea that he spoke to these teenage kids and came up with the shot for yeah. them. It, it's of, so ridiculous. <laughs> That's it's, his inspiration. A group of dumb teenagers at a grocery store on Christmas it, Eve. It's so deplorable. It's Michael Bay. <laughs> I, I remember being on set of Transformers 4 and they were shooting, I believe it was Detroit, like a downtown section of Detroit that was like destroyed. It, it, in the movie, it's China. There was a, lot, a bunch of onlookers on top of a parking garage from afar. And he got on his megaphone, and I remember he yelled to them. He was like, "You think you're gonna be in my movie? Well, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna digitally crop you out. You're not gonna be in my movie. You don't get to be in my movie." <laughs> and I'm not sure how serious he was or how kidding, but that's that's the kind of, uh, I don't know. That's the kind of uh, self awareness that Bay has. I think. 
I think he knows. Uh, I think, yeah, he has to know. <laughs> but the thing I'll say, actually, one great comment I thought in the Rock Audio comment, Ed Harris talks about James Cameron a lot and Michael Bay. And Michael Bay would ask him a ton of questions about James Cameron. And Ed Harris thought Michael Bay just wanted to be compared to James Cameron. And he had no idea why he wanted to be because he said James Cameron, when he's shooting, is an asshole. And he said, I don't actually think Michael Bay is an asshole, but if you ask his crew, they'll probably say differently. <laughs> I'm sure they will. And I'm uh, sure just like you've heard so many great stories from crew members or people that have worked on Michael Bay movies. I think anyone that works with him probably has a good story to tell. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've heard quite a few. <laughs> I mean, I, they don't allow phones on Michael Bay sets. He doesn't want anybody oh. being on their phone, you know, you're working you're working and I, I i heard from a producer that was on set that you know had to check his email very quick and michael bay grabbed the phone out of his hand and threw it you know <laughs> across the I, love, I love it that a 50 year old man does that like yeah it works throws a phone <laughs> that that is michael bay so what's the most interesting thing we've we learned about the transformers movies from these commentaries i guess maybe just how untested waters it was for the first movie and it seemed like the movie of his that was the most nerve-wracking and the most unclear he was about making a movie. So for the first, I would recommend the first audio commentary just to hear his experience of trying to make, as he said, robots that transform cool. I think a lot of people don't give him credit for the advances that he puts in place for the special effects technology. Yeah, and, he mentioned that once or twice in the commentaries. Oh, does he? <laughs> yeah, he does. And, I mean, listening to him, you could compared to other commentaries, he seems to have a greater grasp of special effects and what's a good, a good special effect and a bad special effect compared to other directors. I hope someday someone can make a documentary of Michael Bay. I want to follow him around for, like, the making of a movie from, like, start to development, to the editing, to the premiere. And I want to see what it's like. I would do. And it's interesting about those commentaries is I don't really know a whole lot about Michael Bay, or at least his personal life. Like, nor should we, but he does share these little details about himself every now and then that are kind of funny or interesting, like knowing about, like, the Witwicky parents. He bases them off his parents. Like, he it's has a teacher too. Questions. Oh, is she? Yeah. Which is uh, not what you'd expect, I think, from Michael Bay. Anyways, Jack, <laughs> thanks for coming on and talking about Michael Bay. Uh, yeah, where, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Uh, slash film, pretty much every day. And we can find you on Twitter at? Jack G G I. Yeah, you don't want anybody to find you, though. No, I don't. <laughs> okay, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Don't tweet at me. Don't talk to me. Yeah. Also on SlashFilm.com, you can find Josh Spiegel reviewing Despicable Me 3. Spoiler alert, he didn't like it. Rounding up our week of Edgar Wright, you can see Alex rounding up every video game reference in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Kirsten Hunt takes a deep dive into movie references and homages in Edgar Wright's work. And Ethan Anderton has the second part of his interview with Edgar Wright about the 10 movies that influenced Baby Driver. You can find all this and more at SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to SlashFilm Daily on iTunes, Stitcher, and every popular podcast app. We're very much still experimenting with this podcast, so please feel free and send your feedback to us at ORFilms at gmail.com, and I will see you on Monday.